Welcome to the Vertical Life. My name is Noam Manyamatejero. In this episode, episode 2, I share about the false doctrine of asceticism. Someone text is Colossians chapter 2 from verse 20 through 23. Enjoy. Colossians chapter 2 verse 20 uh, to 23. I'm uh, reading from uh, the NIV. It says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not test, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use. But they are based on, because they are based on human commandments and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. This is the word of God. Today we, today we are finishing we are doing part two of the, the false doctrines in church, but we try to define them when you get the, the notes for the notes for last week will be available next week. Uh, but when you get the notes, the, those doctrines are defined before your notes. But I'm going to go through them very quickly. The first one was is called legalism, and what legalism means uh, is that is a teaching that you can earn God's love and favor and approval and blessings through what you do. In other words, by following the rules. If I follow the rules, God will bless me. That's legalism. The second one we looked at was mysticism. Now, mysticism is the worship of angels. And uh, here in Colossians, it's called the worship, of in, in, the worship of angels. But mysticism is trying to put your trust in another mediator apart from Christ. It may be angels. It may be the ancestors who are dead. And it may be something else. But normally what we talked about is that it's normally the angels. It may be the saints, like in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. It's the saints. We pray through the saints. It may be through the dead, like it's done here in Buganda when people go to, 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 to clean and weed the graveyards. Uh, and then number three, we looked at, we looked at a third doctrine called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is G-N-O-S-T-I. Now you can get it. Gnosticism starts with G and O. Gnosticism is belief in a higher, higher wisdom or higher knowledge. In other words, you may have, you may try to believe in scientific ideas more than you believe in scripture. 
we can say you are agnostic. You may try to believe in what, what archaeologists have discovered about, about the skull of Abraham and where it was buried. And you come to believe that he died 300 million years ago when the scripture says something different. So to believe in a higher power aside from scripture is Gnosticism. And the last one, the fourth one, is asceticism. Now asceticism is spelled as A S C E T. It is A S C E. And then you can find your way around it. But asceticism by definition um, is trying to win God's love and favor by prohibition by stopping yourself from doing particular things uh one of the one of the most prevalent ascetic ideas in church today is fasting and fasting is not a bad thing in and of itself but some of us use it as a way of hungering ourselves so that god will see us as hungry people and will have pity on us and then he will pour his blessings on us. In other words, we try to twist God's hand from the back. Uh, fasting is a good thing if you do it out of reverence, out of worship. But when you do it because you want stuff from God, it becomes ascetic. Another thing that is ascetic is what I think it's done in the Roman Catholic Church where people go to monasteries so that they can isolate themselves from sinners. And uh, last week I gave a quote about someone who said that you can go to a monastery, uh, but when you enter there, you realize that you entered with the entire world there. You don't leave the world behind and enter the monastery. You go with the world. Because when you enter the monastery, you don't leave your sin outside. You enter with your sin. Because the sin is inside you. It's not out there. Out there it's inside here. So those are the four doctrines, legalism, gnosticism, mysticism, and asceticism. When you get the notes, it will be clear. So don't try to uh, confuse your minds right now. Uh, so today we are, we are going to deal with asceticism, the last one I talked about, uh, about trying to prohibit ourselves from doing particular things in order to earn the love and favor and approval of God. Uh, but before we go there, uh, many Christians in church believe the gospel according to Nike. Do you know Nike? Instead of the gospel according to Christ. Now Nike is a sports company. You have seen balls, you have seen shoes, you have seen that. That is Nike. Or you can say Nike, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but Nike carries a more compelling message than the gospel sometimes to most of us and Nike has a tagline the tagline for Nike says just do it just do it and uh, that tagline is more compelling actually it's more compelling to me but it's more compelling to the people in church than the Christian message and later I'm going to point out how just do it and Nike is really different. It's the opposite of the gospel. But we believe in it because of uh, particular reasons. Uh, because we love the exhortations of do more and try harder. Now, just do it sells. 
in church or just don't do it whatever you want to say it sells uh, in church and what I mean uh, is not that we just love being told what to do but we also crave doing stuff uh, some of you were talking about uh, Jesus when Jesus visited the family of Martha and Mary and then uh, Mary sat with uh, Jesus and then Martha was doing the dishes and trying to prepare something. And so um, Martha tells Jesus, tell my sister to come and help me in the kitchen. And then Jesus rebukes Martha instead of rebuking Mary who is seated. Uh, we, we talked about it. And uh, the, the, what Martha does is what the church does. We love to do stuff. We love to do stuff. And, and, and uh, we normally ask ourselves, we normally ask people ourselves, what should I do? Tell me something that I can do. When you visit people and you find them in the kitchen, you ask them, what should I do? Which is a good thing. Uh, but when it comes to the gospel, it may not be as good as it is in the kitchen. Uh, but sometime back, uh, I heard about... A grieving story. It was about a pastor. A pastor was telling a story about a, a young couple that had just joined this church. Uh, this couple were also the, the couple was also living near them, near their residence, and so they took time to to disciple this couple. And uh, after like um, a few months, like eight or nine months, this couple comes to the pastor's office and they want to talk to the pastor, and they tell him. That they are changing the church. They are leaving this church and going to another church. And so the pastor asks why they are going. And uh, the couple tells him that they need a church where they will tell them to do something. They need a church where they will tell them what to do. They are tired of sitting there and they are not being told what to do. They are young and energetic and they need to do stuff for Jesus. They need to live their lives for Jesus. Um, and this is not just their story. It is our story and it is your story and it is my story. Boy, don't we stand there, don't we sit there and ask ourselves what we are doing for Jesus and how well we are doing it? Don't we compare ourselves to other people that are doing stuff for Jesus and we are like, they are doing it better than I do it? It happens to me. Uh, I, I, listen to, I listen to teachers, I listen to worshippers, I listen to them, and I'm like, these guys are doing a good job for Jesus than I am. Um, we are really addicted to law. And I'm talking about legalism. Legalism comes from the word, comes from law, trying to do the law. We are addicted to law. All of us, we love doing and we don't like sitting there. Uh, we love to be in control. Legalistic people want control. They want to control their salvation. They want to control what happens in their lives. And they want to control other people. And we love to make things happen. What we have, what we have had our entire lives is, for Christ's sake, don't just sit there. Do something. That is what we have heard. And our parents tell us, don't sit there, do something. 
You know what the gospel says? The gospel says, don't just do something, sit there. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. When Jesus, when Jesus rebukes Martha, she's telling, he, she's telling her that actually Mary has discovered the truth. And what she's doing is what you should be doing. Stop doing stuff. Come and sit. I have come to do my Father's will. I have come to do your will. So Jesus says. Uh, and uh, that is what is happening in our passage today. The passage I've just read. So those were side roads. But um, um, uh, we, are still, we are still in the passage we are reading today. Uh, the Judaizers. The Judaizers are the people who, who believe in the old law of Moses. Who believe in Judaism. The old religion of Moses is called Judaism. So the Judaizers are the believers in Judaism. So the Judaizers had come to the church in Colossae. And they were telling the Colossians. That they should keep the law of Moses. But also believe in Jesus. Yet the apostles. Were telling the people in Colossae the opposite. That Christ came and fulfilled the law of Moses. And now we don't pay allegiance to Moses, but we believe in Christ who has done for us what we can do for ourselves. And so, these doctrines come when we put what Christ has done and what our faith should be in, in the back seat and try to do stuff by ourselves. Instead of trying to lead our lives through faith in Jesus, we try to do it through our works, through our tears, through our sweat and our blood. And this is what was happening. And so, the Judaizers have come with the message of do this and do that, or don't do that. They had laid it on the Colossians because the Colossians, like all of us, are addicted to law. They're addicted to doing stuff. They're addicted to just do it. So they embraced it. With one hand, with one hand, one, with one heart, and with both their hands open. Now the lives of the Colossians were marked by an obedience to regulations and a deep devotion to prohibitions. Now when I talk about prohibitions, I'm talking about what Paul is saying here uh, in verse 20 when he says that since you died to Christ, if the basic principles of the world, why are you? Still belonging to it. Why do you submit to its rules? Verse 21. Do not handle. Do not test. Do not touch. Those are the prohibitions I'm talking about. They thought that if they didn't touch particular things. If they didn't eat particular things. Some people still believe that God will hate them if they eat pork. Absurd. They, they tried to inflict pain on their bodies. So that they will show themselves to be more spiritual than everyone else. In other words, they submitted to the false doctrine of asceticism. This is what, if actually the word asceticism is used in scripture. If you have uh, the ESV and the RSV, I think, the word asceticism is there. I don't know about the KJV, the NIV is not there. But the word asceticism is there. But here, Paul Paul says, um, he uses the word self-imposed worship. 
uh, false humility and harsh treatment of the body. Now, asceticism is, 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 is harshly treating the body, thinking that God will love you if you put your body under control. We talked about uh, the Reverend Fathers in the ancient Roman Catholic Church who would cut themselves, who would whip themselves because the body has craved stuff that is not... Uh, that, that, that does not glorify God. When you, be, when you are a glutton and you crave food, you beat yourself to pulp. Because, because, <laughs> because the body is trying to inspire some tendencies that do not glorify God. In other words, it's trying to submit to the will of food instead of submitting to the will of God. Uh, so in my former church, I used to belong to a church, and I used to belong to a church council. I was I was the youth leader uh, in uh, in the parish there, and so one time we sat in the council. We had we had a program, uh, we had a, a project, a big project worth worth around two billion shillings, and then uh, we were looking for money of uh, how to finance it. We hadn't planned very well. And so we are short of money. And someone came up with a brilliant idea. And uh, he said that we should, uh, we should come up with uh, some envelopes, uh, give them to our Christians, ask them to, put, to, to fast and put their money in these envelopes and bring the envelopes. So the envelopes came into effect. And so uh, we, we gave people envelopes and we told them once every month, you get your lunch, if it's 20,000, some of you are going to, are going to pizza hut to eat pizza. Some of you are going to chicken tonight. Others are going to Mamma Mia. Others are going to all those expensive places. You get your lunch of 42,000. Yeah. And then you, you, you put it in the envelope and bring it to us. And, uh, God will, God will be glorified in that. And, uh, the problem, with it was that we had legislated fasting because most people were telling to fast were not doing it because they loved Jesus they were not doing it because God had done something to them and they really wanted to thank God by doing something wonderful for Jesus or they were not doing it out of reverence they were doing it because we had lied to them that if they do it, God will love them. And so people started to do it. And people started to give in. And, 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 and the problem is that we had forced them. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, in scripture, which in the Old Testament, fasting is, is okay. But when you get to the New Testament, you are not going to find any scripture Especially, apart from when you go past the four Gospels and Acts, when you start Romans up to Revelation, you won't find any scripture that asks you to fast so that God will love you. Or God will accept you. Or God will forgive you. Or God will give you stuff. It is not there. So there are no exhortations about fasting. But there are two instances in Acts where the the the, the the, the, the early church does fast. 
And uh, if you get your notes, you'll see these references. One is Acts chapter 13, verse 2 and 3, and then Acts chapter 14, verse 23. And they fast, first of all, uh, because there is a, a solemn occasion they are fasting for, maybe they are planning for something and they fast. And the other thing they fast is because uh, the circumstances are critical. And so they, they say, let's submit ourselves to God in fasting because of what is going on in church. But all those fasting is out of individual choice. The early church never said all of us are going to fast whether you want it or not. Like we used to tell people that you have to get an envelope. Remember one time uh, the, the priest stood uh, the, the pulpit and said ushers come and distribute the envelopes. Go row by row. Go, go pew by pew. Now that is the problem. We didn't give these people a choice. Because in the end there, there are some health issues involved. Some people are on medication. They can't fast. Some, 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 uh, my, 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 my brother has a problem with, uh, it's like ulcers, but it's not really ulcers. And when it comes, he has to be he has to be admitted into a hospital and take a few bottles of whatever that is called. Yeah, but it comes when he he takes a few days without eating on time. So such a person can't fast, and this is recurring. It has happened like three times in five years. He has been admitted like three times in five years. That very condition. And so there are some people you can't really force to worship. And such people are not going to, to worship, to, rather to fast. So those people are not going to force themselves to fast. Now, now it's, it's, really, it's really wise to do things out of faith. But there is a difference between being, faith, be, be, being faithful to God and having faith and being foolish. That there is a difference. When you act without knowledge, without mental assent, that is not faith. Faith as faith involves knowledge, agreeing mentally to the knowledge and following it and believing it. In other words, when I hear about Jesus Christ and I know that what Jesus has done has happened in history, it is not fiction, it is historical, it is true, I agree with it and then believe in it, that is faith. But when I come and find a ditch and then I say I'm going to fly over it because I have faith, that is foolishness. You're going to fall in it and you're going to break your leg. I think you see the difference. When you have a spiritual condition that is not going to force, that is not going to allow you to fast, please don't try and fast. I think you have heard of instances where people die because they are trying to do a dry fast of that 40 days. People have, people have died out of sheer foolishness and they call it faith. Actually, the other, the other word for foolishness is blind faith. It's really blind faith. It does not have eyes. It's not rooted in the knowledge of Christ. And knowledge deals with facts. So you have to have facts, agree with the facts, embrace the facts. Then you can say you have faith in something. And so what we did 
in our church there, we forced people to fast. And uh, I know some of them had spiritual conditions, or rather health conditions. I didn't allow them to fast, but we forced them to fast. And in the end, we committed this error in church. We preached the doctrine of asceticism. We preached the false doctrine of asceticism to people by convincing them that if they fast, God will love them. And some of them fasted and God, well, God still loves them. Uh, God loves everyone. That is why he came and died for them. But some of them are still saved. But when you tell people that God will love them if they fast, some of them will fast and think that their fasting is going to save them and not their faith in Jesus. So in the end, we crushed them. Uh, now, even in the Colossians, they thought that if they did not handle taste or touch, God would smile on them. You see, at the root of it, asceticism is really negative legalism. If, if, you, if, you, if, if you know what legalism is, legalism is, is believing that I can do stuff and God will love me. Now, asceticism is saying, I'm not, go- I'm not going to do stuff and God will love me. So, asceticism is negative legalism. You are prohibiting yourself from doing stuff. While in legalism, you are allowing yourself to do stuff. But all in the hope that God will love you and God will bless you and uh, all that. Uh, now, Paul identifies three from, from what we are going to look at, Paul identifies three problems with this approach to Christianity, what we've been talking about. And look at verse 22, if you have your Bible. These are all destined to perish. Number one is that when you put your faith in not doing things and inflicting pain on yourself, you have to realize that what you are putting your faith in does perish with use. Here it says, these all are destined to perish with use. Number two, they are human laws. They are based on human tradition. They are not from God. They are made up by men. In an attempt to reach God. And number three, they are powerless to restrain the indulgences of the flesh. And what Paul means here is that when you try to isolate yourself from other people's thinking that you are going to prevent yourself from sinning, you are lying. Even if you lock yourself in a room, the only thing that will allow you to sin is already with you, your flesh. In other words, you are, you are inside the room and the whole world is there with you. My uncle told me, once told me that he doesn't want his kids to mingle with those kids in the village because they will teach his kids bad manners. And I was like, I was like, you can lock your kids in the room, in your house, and at five years old, your kids will start to ask you funny questions. And when you don't give them answers, they will try to find out by themselves. So you don't teach people to sin. People are born sinners. Uh, I, 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 I always remind you of, of David in his confession in Psalm 51 when he says, Surely in sin my mother conceived me. I was conceived in sin. You are conceived in sin. All of us are conceived in sin. 
and the the only way the only way this sin can be defeated is not by locking ourselves up in a room or by beating ourselves up or by saying we are not going to mingle with those people we are not going to watch that TV program that does not work it does not work Paul himself says that they lack any value in restraining the sensual indulgences of our flesh they can't kill sin in us they can't quote is attributed to John Bunyan but we don't know if it's Bunyan that said it it says it says run John run the Lord demands but gives us neither feet nor hands far better news the gospel brings it bids us fly and gives us wings I'll say that again run John run the Lord demands but gives us neither feet nor hands Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Now there are two things involved in this, these three or four lines. There is the law and the gospel. And what the author of this poem says is that the, go- the law instructs you on what to do but cannot give you the ability to do what it tells you to do. Run, John, run, the Lord demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. It, it, it commands me to run, but does not give me feet and the hands to run. So, so in other words, in other words, trying to prohibit yourself from doing things does not really produce in you the desire of not sinning. It doesn't. Theologians say the law commands love but only the gospel does beget love. That the law may command you to love but it cannot give you the power to love. It can't. You need something else to give you the power to love and the gospel is for that specific purpose. Run, John, run, the law demands but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings it bids us fly and gives us wings. So when the gospel commands you to fly, it gives you wings to fly. And that's the difference between the law and the gospel. The gospel fulfills what the law demands. When the, gospel, when the law says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, the gospel says Christ has been perfect on your behalf. And that's the good news. When the law says, honor your father and your mother, the gospel says, Jesus has honored his father on your behalf so that you are infallibly accepted by the father on the basis of Jesus' obedience. And so, the law demands what it cannot accomplish. And, of course, it commands you to run but cannot give you the feet or the hands to run. But the good news of the gospel is that it bids us fly and gives us the wings to fly. The gospel accomplishes what the law demands. Now you see, contrary to our addiction to law, as I conclude, um, the gospel is not just do it. The gospel is, it is finished. Um, It is God who works on our behalf. God in Jesus does work on our behalf. And uh, when you read Matthew, uh, Matthew, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew does start with, uh, with the birth of Jesus 
And then it, it runs very quickly and then Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted. But then comes back and is baptized. Now the first thing Jesus does as he starts his public ministry is preach a sermon on the law. And that sermon is called the sermon on the mount. It's in Matthew, starting Matthew chapter 5 up to Matthew chapter 7, I think. Matthew 5, 6 and 7, the sermon on the mount. The Beatitudes, uh, the law, all that is in there. But Jesus says some very important words. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That God made demands on you and me in the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says it in the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is what the law demands. But for 3,000 years, none of us was perfect. None of us kept the law perfectly. And so Jesus came to be perfect on our behalf. To keep the law on our behalf. Not to abolish it. Don't get me wrong. But to keep it. For me and you. And so he does this. And this is the good news of the gospel. When Jesus says it is finished, what he means is that I have finished the mission my father gave me. To do for you what you can't do for yourself. If our love for God was based on us keeping the law, we failed. We can't restore our relationship with God by keeping the rules. Because the rules demand perfection and we are not perfect. But Jesus comes, and the reason Jesus comes in the body, as a person, as a God-man, is so that he can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He could still do it as God, but he still needs to be a human being to accomplish for us what God requires of us. And so the good news of the gospel is that Christ has fulfilled the law for me and you. And so we are accepted by God, we are approved by God, we are loved by God infallibly and conditionally on the basis of what Christ has done. And that's the gospel. Um, Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he made him, Jesus, to be seen, who knew no sin, so that you can become, so that you will be the righteousness of God. That Jesus takes your place. The reason he comes in flesh is to take your place as a sinner, so that you can accomplish what you can't accomplish on behalf. In my place condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. He stands in your place, he stands in my place, and do for me, and he does for you what you can't do for yourself. So we don't come to church, to church first of all, to be told what to do. We come to church to be reminded of what has already been done for us. The problem with sitting in church and wanting to be told what to do is it comes out of legalism. First and foremost, we are called to be reminded to hear the announcement of what God has done for us. That is the gospel. 
the, 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 the Latin word for gospel is evangel. And the Greek word is yungalion. Uh, now yungalion means good news. Now the gospel falls under the category of news. The gospel is not something you do. The gospel is news about what God has done for sinners and sufferers like me and you. And so when that is announced to me and you, it empowers us to do. Now big difference. You, you don't see, I, I don't come here to tell you, go and do stuff for God. I come here to remind you what God has done for you. And in that seed of what God has done for you, the Holy Spirit will birth in you the desire to do stuff. Not for God, but for your neighbor. God does not need your good works. Your neighbor does. Everything that is required of you before God was accomplished by Jesus. That is why he says it is finished. So that these good works that we think we can do for God can be horizontalized. And they are done for our neighbor. That's why Jesus, that's why Jesus says, that it's not Jesus. Jesus actually himself says that, 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 that if, 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 you can't, if you can't really love these people you are with, then how can you love him? The apostle, is it John, is it Peter who says that how can you say that you love God you have never met? But you can't love the one person you stay with. So because God fulfilled, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law and our relationship with God is settled it is perfect. You cannot break it. You cannot mend it. You cannot add to it. You cannot subtract from it. We are freed from the need to please God by prohibition, by trying to abstain from things, by trying to pierce ourselves, by trying to beat ourselves up. We are freed from that so that we can look sideways to our neighbor and identify their needs and meet their needs. And that is the work of the gospel. That is the fruit of the Spirit. And when you look at Paul talking about the fruit of the Spirit, you realize that everything he talks about relates to our horizontal relationships, not our vertical relationships. Horizontally. Me and my neighbor. Me and you. You and him. You and her. They conclude. I've said it once. This is the second time. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. Galatians 2, 19. It says, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law. Christ died for nothing. So in other words when we try to do the law. And try to base our relationship with God. On what we do and what we don't do. We treat the, 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 the work of Christ. And the death of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ in vain. Verse 21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if the right, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It is a flat out announcement that you and I 
died to our sinful passions and that now Christ lives in us. Christ lives in you and Christ lives in me. And he works in you and works in me. It's no longer me that lives, but Christ who lives in me. The life we live is not by law, but by faith in Christ who lives and works in us. You are defined but by what Christ has accomplished on your behalf and not what you accomplish by yourself. I'll say that again. As a Christian, you are defined by Christ's work for you, not your work for God. <laughs> 